right. Well, good evening, Saints. Man, I am so excited to be here with you tonight. Y'all excited to get in the Word? Eric and Judah send you their greetings. They are in Chicago, strengthening and building up the body of Christ in the Arising Church. Some amazing things going on in that body right now. Look, tonight's going to be an exciting night. I think we're due for an exciting Monday night, aren't we? Oh, that's what I like to hear. Tonight we're in chapter 31. And this chapter could not be more pertinent to what God is doing in our body right now. Man, God is so good, isn't he? He's so good and gracious to our church to consistently and completely give us what we need when we need it. Man, I couldn't be any more blessed to receive the teaching from our pastors yesterday morning. And I believe you will see the providence of God throughout our study tonight in arranging what we are reading. Let's start and pray, and then we're going to read the chapter. So I'm going to need an anointed, smeared with the holy presence man of God like Carlos Rueda to open us up in the service. So if we can start out and have Miss Natalie Eregina read the chapter for us. She is exceptionally good at pronouncing those Hebrew names. So we're going to jump right in. (laughs) When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. After they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. Hezekiah assigned the priests and Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites, to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. Mm. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbath, new moons, and appointed feasts as written in the law of the Lord. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the old order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain new wine, oil, and honey, and all the fields produced, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. The men of Israel and Judah, who lived in the towns of Judah, also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks, and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God, and they piled them in heaps. Mm. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps. 
and the Asherah, and, and Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring the contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare, because the Lord had blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. Hezekiah gave orders to prepare storerooms in the temple of the Lord, and this was done. Then they faithfully brought in the contributions, tithes, and dedicated gifts. Hananiah, <laughs> a leader, was in charge of these things, and his brother, Shemaiah, was next in rank. Jehiel, Ezahiah, Nahab, Azahel, Jeremoth, Josabad, Eliel, Ishmaiah, Mahath, and Benaiah were supervisors under Conaniah and Shemaiah, his brother. Yeah. By appointment of King Hezekiah and Azariah the official in charge of the temple of God. Kor, son of Imna the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was in charge of the freewill offerings given to God, distributing the contributions made to the Lord and also consecrated gifts. Even Midnamin, Jeshua, Yeshemiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah mm. assisted him faithfully in the towns of the priests, distributing to their fellow priests according to their divisions, old and young alike. In addition, they distri- just distributed the males three years old or more whose names were in the genealogy uh, genealogical record. All who would enter the temple of the Lord to perform the daily duties of their various tasks, according to the responsibilities and their divisions. And they distributed to the priests enrolled by their families and in the genealogical records, and likewise to the Levites, 20 years old or more, according to the responsibilities and their divisions. They included all the little ones, the wives, and the sons and daughters of the whole community listed in these genealogical records. For they were faithful in consecrating themselves. As for the priests, the descendants of, of Aaron, who lived on farmlands around their towns or in any other towns, men were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among them and to all who were recording in the genealogy of the Levites. This is what Hezekiah did through Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God in everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands. He sought his God and worked wholeheartedly, and so he prospered. Amen. Y'all give it up for Miss Natalie. Now, to be fair, the only proper way to pronounce those Hebrew words are to drink a gallon of milk and speak like you have bronchitis. So that was pretty good. Look, before we begin, I want to recap a few things, and then we will jump straight into the first verse. Y'all want to do that? Look, I know you guys get bogged down with reviews and recaps, but it's important that we keep doing this. Because there is a story that's being told by Ezra about Hezekiah. So two weeks ago, we covered chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles. We saw Hezekiah 
open the front doors of the temple that had been shut by wicked, worthless Ahaz. Hezekiah then orders that the priests and Levites consecrate themselves. After this, he orders that the temple be purified from all of its menstrual filth. Last week, we covered chapter 30. In this chapter, Hezekiah orders that couriers go out and call the people back to Jerusalem to repent and celebrate Passover. The people gathered in such large numbers and were not consecrated that the Levites had to consecrate themselves in order to assist the people in their Passover sacrifices. If you know your Torah, you know that it wasn't the priest's job to sacrifice for the family. It was the husband's job, the leader of every family, to sacrifice it himself, but he had to be consecrated. Since he wasn't, the Levites jumped in, they rose up, and they did the work. This ultimately led to the priests to consecrate themselves. Man, that's good when priests get consecrated, isn't it? The Passover ends with the king, the priests, the Levites, the people of Israel, and the foreigners rejoicing greatly. Now, I want you to remember the dire circumstances that were in the background of these events. The Assyrians had captured the northern kingdom and deported most of the Israelites there. Y'all remember reading about that in Kings? The Assyrians were conquering the entire north. They were deporting the Israelites and settling Assyrians into the land. Man, that's a travesty that falls upon God's people over and over again throughout history. The people who remained in the land were ignorant of the law, so lions began to eat the people. Man, that is a bad day. Man is supposed to have dominion over the animals. We are supposed to reign over them. It is something demonic and wicked whenever animals have free reign to eat the people. But that's what was going on. Now what we are seeing here is that in the midst of the worst period in Israel's history, the greatest revival that has ever been seen is breaking out. In the midst of such darkness and travesty, there is a revival stirring up in Judah. So we must ask, we must ask the question, what caused the revival? That's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. That's a good question for our time that we're living in. Man, are things getting dark outside of these walls? Yeah. Man, all you have to do is read the news and see that we are headed on a wrong path as a nation. Man, wouldn't you like to know what would cause a revival in the midst of darkness? Yeah. Well, we're going to answer that question by the end of tonight. To get there, we're going to have to read through this and go through the story. So Linton, liaison, law on the lips, Linton. If you'll start out in verse 1, we're going to get this thing going. Amen? Amen. When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, Mm. and cut down the Asherah They destroyed the high places. And the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin, and in Ephraim and Manasseh. After they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their towns and to their own property. Man, say, smash the stones. Smash the stones. And they cut down the poles. Cut down the poles. They destroyed everything that was not supposed to be there. But notice the first part of that verse. When all this had ended, then they went to do this. 
when all what ended? Well, we're going to have to read the last verse of last week. That's 2 Chronicles 30, verse 26. Who wants to read that? Get it, JJ. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Man, there was great joy. Say great joy. Great joy. In Hebrew, that word is great. It's big. It's large. There wasn't little joy. There was big joy in Jerusalem. Man, there was big joy and their prayer reached the heaven. Man, that's an exciting thing, isn't it? When all of the people have great joy because of what God is doing in their midst and their prayer reaches heaven. I want you to know what caused that great joy, though. The entire family of Israel had been consecrated. Everybody from the priests down to the people and the foreigners had been consecrated. Man, at that point, priests begin to stand up and do what they're called to do. Man, people get blessed because of what happens in the priests. Then they cry out to God and their prayers are heard from heaven. Man, that would bring great joy, isn't it? Man, what would it be like if we all got together and had a prayer meeting and God just sent forth a sign, I have heard your prayer from heaven. Man, that would cause great joy, wouldn't it? Big joy. Look, there's something going on here that I want to cue you into. That great joy is leading somewhere. That response from that great joy is going to cause something in Israel that they do something with. So I want to hand out a few passages on that. Who wants to read? Steve Thomas, you get Isaiah 55, verse 10 through 12. And Abimbola. You're going to read 2 Chronicles 30, verse 13 through 14. And Nolan, you're going to get Acts 1, 7 through 8. Uh, JJ, you're going to get Acts 16, 29 through 34. And uh, we'll pause for there. Isaiah 55, 10 through 12. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Pause right there. Look, I love the imagery in Isaiah 55, but there's some astonishing statements that this gives us. God is speaking about his own word and he's saying it will not return to me empty. When I send my word on the earth, it doesn't come back not doing what I told it to do. It will accomplish what I desire and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? You know, I kind of wish that was true about my word when I get on the job site. I could just say it, and then whenever it comes back around, it's already done. The truth is, is that God's word will never be left undone. Ever. Period. God's word will never come to him void and not finished. Even if it seems like it's not done, it will always find a way 
to do it. God's Word will take its time to get done what it needs to be done. God's Word will break through any obstacles that need to be broken through. God's Word will actually skip over something or someone if it needs to. So if God's Word is landing on, I don't know, Nolan, and God's Word is saying, Nolan, you must go do this, and Nolan says, no, I'm not going to do it, it will skip over Nolan and go to someone else until that Word gets done. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? What's happening here is the Word of God is actually starting to mix with faith in real vessels. The Word of God is actually starting to accomplish that which God sent it for. Look, the goal of the Word is to mix with faith inside of a vessel. And that's what you're seeing. That's why they're so joyful because they're seeing it come live and active. Keep on going and read verse 12. This is the result of the word coming in live inside of a man. It spreads to the family with joy. When the word comes alive inside of you, it always produces joy. You never see, you never see someone who just needs a word from God. And they get it walking around with their heads like this. Bummed out, ashamed, burdened. No, whenever you need a word from God and you get it, you say, Amen, He spoke to me. I, man, come on. He gave me what I needed. When the word mixes with faith inside of a person, it always results in an uplifting, exuberant kind of joyful attitude that is infectious. And that's what's happening here. Look, when that happens inside of a man, the family around him receives it with joy. Whenever the word grabs a hold of a singular man, And he begins to walk in joy over what he's receiving. It affects the rest of the family around him. Whenever a husband and a wife, they just can't get out of the dumps, but the husband gets a word from God, the wife notices because they see, she sees joy all over his face. That's what's happening here is the man, Hezekiah, receives a word. The family sees the joy and they start to take it to the nation. Those that realize the great opportunity... And seize it are like those who spread it like wildfowl, like wildfire. They had great joy. And the first thing that they did, let's go tear down some idols. They received something from the Lord. And the first thing, let's go to war. Man, that is what happens whenever the word comes alive. Those that lose the divine development of character, though, they see it as a burden. That's not what happening here in Israel. They received great joy and now they're going to go smash stuff. That's exciting, isn't it? I know Joshua's excited for that. He loves to smash stuff. Amen. That'll preach. Look, I want you to see it where it all started last week. Go to 2 Chronicles 30, verse 13 through 14. Who's got that? It says this. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. Last week, when we read, we saw that the people are coming in out of a response of an evangelistic effort. The people join with the priests and they start in Jerusalem and they begin to rid out all of the idols as a result of great joy. And you want to see where it's going? Yeah. 
Read Acts 1, 7 through 8. Who's got that? I do. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Look, in Jesus' day, they experience Passover. The disciples do. And then Jesus raises from the dead and says, wait in Jerusalem and the power of the Holy Spirit will come down on you. Then he tells them, what starts here will reach Judea and Samaria. Y'all familiar with that? In Hezekiah's day, it starts in Jerusalem. It starts as consecrating, cleansing. It starts as Passover, just like in Jesus' day. They start in Jerusalem clearing out idols. And where are they going next? Judea, and then to Ephraim and Manasseh. Evangelism is spreading, folks. Look, the hope. It's safe to say that when they were full of joy, it's because they got full of the Holy Ghost. When they were full of joy, it's because they experienced Passover on a level that had never happened, just like in Jesus' day, and they got full of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit filled them, and they saw the fruit of the Spirit in their own Lives. Man, can anybody tell me what those fruits of the Spirit are? Man, I'll tell you. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is shalom. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's self-control. Man, when the Holy Spirit is consecrating and cleansing... You can't help but to go smash all the idols all around you. Man, you can't help but to spread it to your family. When the Holy Spirit is rising up inside of a man, the very next thing he wants to do is spread that all around him. And i got to tell you, that is infectious. When that kind of thing happens in your life, you don't need words so much. You just need to be who you are filled with the Holy Ghost, and they will see it. The next statement follows. When your family gets consecrated in the Holy Spirit, you can't help but to bring it to the nation. Man, the nation will notice, won't it? That brings us to Acts 16, verse 29 through 34. Who's got that? The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Now get this for a second. Paul and Silas are in prison. And what are they doing in prison? They're singing hymns of joy. Yeah. They're singing hymns of joy because they were tearing down idols at the ends of the earth where Jesus said they always would do it. Those songs of joy in the midst of suffering, what did they do? They shook the place. Not only did they shake the place, they shook the jailer. He couldn't understand what was going on that they were singing songs of joy in a place like that. Man, that resulted in Paul's joy spreading to the entire household of that jailer. He takes them out of the prison into his own home and the entire family hears about the word that they have to speak. Man, that joy affected one man. Say one man. One man. Then it affected a family. One man. 
and was on its way to affecting that nation. Look, even in suffering, we can have joy because we get to participate in tearing down the idols all around us. We get to participate like Paul in sharing that joy to others. Look, that was supernatural joy that Paul had. And I'll be honest with you, there's been many times on mission trips where I'm a little bit like I just want to get home. The joy that they had was not natural. It was supernatural. That's a different kind of joy. It's easy to have joy whenever things are going your way. That's not a supernatural joy. Your joy that is not supernatural won't change a thing if it only occurs when you are getting what you want. This is what we're preaching about in this church. We're talking about the joy that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Not a joy that's a fruit of you getting what you want. Not a fruit of a joy of of lightening of the load or the ease of circumstances. A joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. If you have a joy that is only natural, a joy that comes from getting what you want, man, that's raising idols, not tearing them down. These men had great joy because they were in the midst of depravity in Israel. And yet what God was doing was reviving them according to the old standard. Look, I didn't hand this one out yet, but I think I'll just read it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through through 19 says, Be joyful sometimes. Always. Always. Be joyful. How much? Always. Always. Pray. Whenever you think that you have time to pray. Pray whenever you're in trouble. Pray continually. And give thanks in some circumstances. Give thanks in the circumstances that benefit you. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Man, you want to know what God's will is? Written right here. To be joyful all the time. Pray continually. And give thanks in all circumstances. Have trouble finding out what God's will is for your life? Start by doing this. I promise he'll show you more. Verse 19 is the best though. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. The fire that burns idols is quenched the second that your joy dwindles in you. The fire that burns up idols in your life is quenched. Whenever that joy starts to wane, whenever that smile starts to droop a little bit, that's when the fire is quenched. That fire is quenched when that joy disappears from your workplace. That joy that you had, like, man, thank God for this job. And now all of a sudden it's hard. That fire that burns idols is quenched when that joy disappears from your marriage, which is supposed to be the example for the world what a relationship with Christ is about. Look, but being joyful always is the fuel of the Holy Spirit inside you. How do you know someone is... Man, I just got to ask, how full do you want to be of the Holy Ghost tonight? You want to be half full? No. You want to be three quarters? No. You want to be full to overflowing? And how do you know you're full to overflowing? It's because joy is exuding from you. That's how you know you've got something that is overflowing. That, that joy is the fuel of the Holy Spirit inside you. If you do these things that 1 Thessalonians says, 
It will allow you to know God's will. God's not going to give more to you if you're not acting these things out. Why would he, why would he share more with us if we're not praying continually or giving thanks in all circumstances? Look, men are called to basically two things. To smash and to build. That is the entire destiny of man. Men are called to smash idols and build up the kingdom of God. It's really hard to do that without finding joy in your work. It's really hard to do that without a smile. I'll be honest with you, it's really hard to... (laughs) It's really hard to be doing that and not be happy. Come on, man. When you're smashing things down and building it, it's kind of exciting, isn't it? How about we get filled with the joy of smashing down the idols of our lives? How about we get consecrated in Jerusalem first and God will send us out to Judea to do it? Let's pick up in verse 2 and we're going to keep going with this. Hezekiah assigned the priests and Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites, to offer burnt offerings fellowship offers, to minister, to give thanks, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. Mm, to sing praises. Look, what Hezekiah is doing here is he's reinstating the 24 divisions of priests. You want to read about that? It's in 1 Chronicles 24-7. He's returning to the pattern that was given to Moses, David, and Solomon. That pattern is mirrored It's a mirror of God's throne on earth. You guys are familiar with the book of Revelation. You know that the throne is surrounded by 24 elders. You know that all of God's divisions were in patterns of 24. What he is doing is returning back to God's throne. And they were appointed to sacrifice, minister, give thanks, and praise. Man, this is what happens at God's throne. This is what happens around God's throne continually. All you have to do is read Isaiah 6 to see it. This is what happens at God's throne and should happen on the throne of our hearts daily. On the throne of our hearts, we should be trying to repattern everything to the throne in heavens. And that's what Hezekiah is doing. Because this is happening in his heart, he is setting the entire nation in accordance to God's throne. Look, when we visit the throne often... And I don't mean the throne in there. I mean the throne here. When we visit the throne often, we usually assign the things in our lives around the throne. When we visit the throne all of the time, praying through the tabernacle, it becomes natural to pattern things in your life according to the throne. When you don't do that, it ends up in chaos. But we're not going to end in chaos tonight. Hey, let's pick up in verse 3 and keep going. For the burnt offerings on the Sabbath, new moons, and appointed feasts as, as written in the law of the Lord. So not only is he trying to get back to the pattern of God's throne, not only is he trying to bring God's throne back to earth where David left it, he is also reinstating the mandatory sacrifices that must be offered. Say mandatory sacrifices. Mandatory sacrifices. There are mandatory sacrifices that we all are apportioned to give. Now, I know that sounds like just common knowledge to you, but I want you to think about it for a second. In the law, there were sacrifices that you gave at times that you didn't know you would give them, like thank offerings. Those just came when you were thankful. Guilt offerings. Whenever you felt shame, you gave them. 
But there were also offerings that were mandatory to be repeated at certain set times. Those things like cleansing, joy, the sacrifice of joy, the sacrifice of cleansing, burning, building. Those are things that are daily and weekly and monthly sacrifices that have to keep going. Not only is this naturally true, but it was mandated by David's fathers. I want you to see that in 2 Chronicles 2.4. Who wants to read that? Paul, you get it. Now I am about to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God and to dedicate it to him for burning fragrant incense before him, for setting out the consecrated bread regularly, and for making burnt offerings every morning and evening, and on the Sabbaths and new moons, and at the appointed feast of the Lord our God. This is a lasting ordinance for Israel. So this is spoken here by David whenever he's about to build the temple, but it goes beyond, it goes way further than David. Moses said the same thing, that this should happen. Daily sacrifices. Say daily. Daily. Weekly sacrifices. Say weekly. Weekly. That's the Sabbath sacrifice. Monthly sacrifices. Say monthly. Monthly. That's the new moon sacrifice. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Israel. These daily, weekly, and monthly sacrifices were mandated. Say mandated. Mandated. And they must be done on top of burnt offerings, sin offerings, thank offerings, guilt offerings, and fellowship offerings. These are the things that were done on top of those things. So you can imagine being there in Israel, right? And God saying, hey, these, you've got to sacrifice for guilt offering. You've got to sacrifice for thank offerings. And then on top of that, I want you to sacrifice something every day. Every week and every month. What do you think their response was? Well, Lord, you're adding more sacrifice on us? Oh, wait, hey, hold on. Sacrifice ended at the cross. No, this is the normative standard for the people of God. Sacrifices that are unplanned and sacrifices that are planned. This is what God requires out of every person in Israel And this is what God requires out of every saint that is sitting here in this church. He requires those sacrifices that are unplanned. Those ones that you didn't know you had to make until the Holy Spirit revealed to you you had to make it. Those are absolutely necessary in your life. And if you haven't had one of those in a long time, I think it's time to get right with God and hear from Him. There are also sacrifices that are planned. Ones that you intend on making. Ones that you know you're going to make and you are preparing yourself to make those. Just daily, not just daily, weekly. Not just weekly, monthly. Now this standard was ordered by God because he's pleased with it. Does that strike any of you as odd? It's what he likes. And he knows it's good for the people to sacrifice. I want you to think about how good God is for a second. He knows that it's good for people to have a planned sacrifice. God knows it's good for them to get used to and having set times that they had to sacrifice. Man, have any of you realized that it's good in your life to sacrifice at a planned time? Yeah, Yeah, for some of you it might be waking up in the morning and reading the Word. For some of you it might be spending time with your wife reading Abigail traits every day. That is a planned sacrifice that you have to have in your life. You have to have those planned sacrifices that say every portion of this will go to the Lord. Every Sunday morning, I will get up and pray for the pastors in this service. 
Those are planned sacrifices you have to have in your life. Now look, God instituted this because he knew he was pleased with it, knew it was good. By the way, did you hear the part where it says it's supposed to be a lasting ordinance? Not going to spend too much time here, but Ezekiel 46 projects that these sacrifices will be offered in the millennial temple. I'll let you read that on your own time. I want you to see, though, that Hezekiah realized that this was good, to the peop- good for the people. Hezekiah realized that God was pleased with this, and what did he do? He contributed at a personal cost to himself to ensure that the people had the ability to sacrifice. Man, that's a good king, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a good king, not just to tell you you must sacrifice, but also give you what to sacrifice. Man, like the king we so love and serve, Yeshua, he offered at a great cost to himself so that we could too. I want to say that again. He offered at a great cost to himself so that you could have the ability to sacrifice. Jesus Christ didn't just die on the cross so you can have a salvation. He didn't just die on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins and have a clear conscience. He died so that you can die with him. He died so that you would have something to offer. Man, that's good, isn't it? Lay, let's pick up in verse 4 and we're going to get some traction. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. The Masoretic says, so that they would be strengthened in the law. He gave the portion due to the priests and Levites so that they can be strengthened in the law. The LXX says, so they could grow strong in the ministry of the house. Look, this is an important lesson we all too often forget. Are you guys hearing me? I see some of you tempted to fall asleep. I know it's a little bit cold in here, but we're going to light it up with the fire of God, aren't we? This is an important lesson we all too often forget. It is the people's role to strengthen the priest. Ah, that didn't get a good enough thing. It is the people's role to strengthen the priest so that he can be strengthened in the law. It's the people's job to strengthen the priest so that the priest can go strong in the ministry of the house. In this day that we live in, we've completely turned this on its head. We have come and said, man, it's the priest's job to strengthen me. And in some sense, that's what they do. Don't forget, it is a part of their job. But we've turned it into a feed me, give me, all about me, me, mine, and everything you can do for me kind of attitude. It was never meant for you just to come sit here, soak, and have these men pour into you and you not do anything with it. It is a part of the people's function to strengthen the priests that are strengthening you. Look, this doesn't just go to a disciple pastor level, although that needs to grow in this house. If you find yourself just being a recipient of the pastors and never contributing to strengthening them, that is a big problem. You know what you call that? A big blessing hole. We want to be a big blessing vessel that breaks open and pours out to everyone around us. This doesn't just apply, though, to disciple and priest levels. Children, man, it's children's job to strengthen their parents. It's children's job to do such a fine job that their parents are proud of what they do. Wives, it's your job to make your husband feel like a success. It's your job to strengthen your husband in the vision that he has. 
Wives, it is your job to look to your husband and say, Honey, you are doing this rightly and I'm standing by your side. Come on, on, man, that's good. Husbands, man, it's your job to strengthen everyone around you. Disciples, it's your job to strengthen these priests. You know what that kind of relationship does? You might find that if you become a good disciple, it might make Matt, you know, just that more excited to disciple you. Amen. Look, I, these men are excited to disciple everybody, but I got to tell you, they're more excited about the ones that are good disciples. It's true. I mean, even Jesus demonstrated that. He had a three, he had a 12, and then he had a 70. He spent the time with the ones he loved. He, he called out to those that he wanted, and they came to him. Disciples, it's your job to strengthen these men. Disciples, disciples play an interesting role in disciples' lives. They actually make them feel like they're accomplishing something, and that's important. We don't always need to feel like we're accomplishing something, but our pastors do, I promise you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the focus back on us, but I want you to see something. Jesus died to strengthen the priests. If Jesus did it, I think we should highlight that in our own uh, lives here in the church, can we? Yeah. Amen. All right, let's pick up in verse 5 and keep going. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. Man, as soon as the order went out, as soon as the order went out, the Israelites gave reluctantly. No, no. They gave half-heartedly. No, they gave gen- generously. Look, I love the English here, but the Masoretic, the Hebrew, just says it way better than this. The Masoretic says, as soon as the word burst forth. Like, as soon as the word burst forth, man, they rushed to do whatever God said. Man, sometimes as soon as the word burst forth, you have got to rise up and do what it says. Amen. They could not wait to give because their king gave freely. The king demonstrated first, Hezekiah gave them what they should sacrifice, and then he asks them to sacrifice, and they could not wait because their king gave freely. They didn't have to do this. They got to do this. It wasn't something that they were like, oh man, can't I just keep this to myself? No, they wanted to partake in the great joy in giving what their king had already given. They simply responded to the generosity of their king and reciprocated in an attitude of thankfulness for what their king had already done. They saw what their king did and they was like, man, I am so thankful. I want to do the same thing. And they weren't half-hearted about it. They were generous. Look, there's something special about an attitude of thankfulness because this applies to all of us in the room. Our king has so freely demonstrated and given us Our first thing to do when the word bursts forth is to be generous with what he's given us. I want to camp out here for a second and I want to talk to you about an attitude of thankfulness. Y'all want to get into that? Are you thankful for this time we have together? You thankful for the word so far? Come on. I'm going to hand out a few passages. Nick Rosales, you're going to get Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Uh, Rob, 
You're going to get Colossians 3, 12 through 16. David Hall. You're going to get Romans 1, 18 through 21. Nolan. You're going to get Philippians 4, 12 through 13. Assad. You're going to get... No, I'm going to hand that to someone else. Anna. Anna Sutherland. Can you get Colossians 4, 2? And that'll be it. We're going to pick up after that. This is about an attitude of thankfulness in response to the king. Philippians 2, 1-4 Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but to each of you, to the interest of the others. Man, you could kind of hear Paul saying this with a little bit of, uh, I don't know, hurt, if you will. Man, if you have any encouragement, do we have any encouragement in here? If you have any comfort, you have any comfort in here? Come on, if you just have any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. It's kind of hard to do if you think you're better than everyone else, isn't it? We literally are called to think of everybody in the church better than ourselves. You say, well, how do I do that? I mean, I'm better than that person at this. Yeah, but there's something that they're better at. And if you start comparing who's better at what... All you'd be doing is comparing yourself to a man, and that's not wise to do. Consider others better than yourselves. Each one should not look only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Look, interaction with the king produces the same desire the king had. When you are interacting with the king on a daily basis, this is what happens inside of you. You start considering others better than yourselves. You start looking out for everyone else's interests, and you just kind of forget about your own interests for a little while. You know what happens if this verse is not true in you, though? It shows you don't have interaction with the king. Thankfulness for what he has done will cause you to reciprocate that thankfulness to every area in your life. When the king de- Has the king demonstrated his love for you? Yes. Has he shown that he is willing to sacrifice for you? Yes. Thankfulness for what he has done will cause you to want to do it to other people. But when you look at what the king has done and somehow it's not enough, then all of a sudden you're considering others better than you stops right there in that moment. Wow. It becomes all about you. Who's got Colossians 3, 12 through 16? I promise you this is going to get good. Actually, 12 through 15. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do to others what he has demonstrated for you. Keep going. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the shalom of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the right order 
with God rule in your hearts. Keep going. Since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. And be thankful. Look, it sounds funny that you have to let the shalom of Christ rule in your heart. But it only sounds funny when you haven't experienced the chaos that can happen inside your heart. The kind of chaos that can rule in your heart, man, that happens all too easy. It happens when you forget what the king has done for you, and you're no longer thankful for it. Look, both Hezekiah and Jesus, they're fantastic kings, aren't they? They demonstrated the generosity first. This should produce the most supreme response in them, and it did. Thankfulness. That should produce the most supreme response in us. Thankfulness. That thankfulness should bring about generous giving in every area of your life. Now, I'm not just talking about money. I'm not talking about tithes. I'm not talking about what you do with your paycheck. That should be a given. I'm talking about the generous kind of giving that happens between a father and his children after he's gotten out of church. That kind of thankfulness for what you have should produce you to want to give generously to your kids. And again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about pouring into them the very Word of God. That kind of thankfulness for everything in your life should cause you to want to give generously to your spouses. Not withhold from them, but to give everything generously. It should cause you to want to give generously to your brothers. It should cause you to want to give generously to the body. It could cause you to want to give generously to the King of Kings. But you know what happens when you're not thankful? The giving stops. Because it becomes all all about what areas of your life that you're not happy with. All of the areas of your life that just are not getting you where you want to go, man. Like all the areas of my job that I just don't enjoy. When that thankfulness stops, the giving generously of your time, the giving generously of your joy, the giving generously of the gifts that God has given you stops when that thankfulness stops. Thankfully, there's an answer. Romans 1, 18 through 21. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. Nor what? Nor gave thanks to Him. Look, you guys are Bible scholars. You know that Romans 1 is Paul's thesis on the depravity of humankind. In this part of that chapter, this is the beginning of the descent of mankind into depravity. And where did it start? Come on, I need to hear some answer. Where did it start? Not thanking him. That's insane, isn't it? It ends up, it ends up saying like God gave them over... To a depraved mind to do things that ought not to be done. But where did it start? Not giving thanks. This is the beginning of descent into depravity. When you do not thank God for what he's doing in your life. This lack of giving thanks to God shows up in our day-to-day action in so many ways. It shows up in our complaining just about things in, in general. 
Like, man, work was just so tough, and man, I, I just, church, I didn't really like the message, and man, I, I, I just, that and this, and man, my wife was being so, what, and my kids are just being so difficult, and I just, man, I just need to get away for a little while. That is a lack of thankfulness. And that lack of thankfulness begins you on a very deep and dark path. That lack of thankfulness shows up in fighting and quarreling between you and everyone around you. Remember what James says? You fight and you quarrel because you do not get what you want. Well, the problem is not actually getting what you want in that situation. The problem is being thankful for what you already have. The problem is not wanting anything else but what God has already given you. This lack of thankfulness shows up in our insecurity. We all like to mask insecurity as if it's like some problem that everybody's okay with and has. Like some problem that we can just talk about and it's okay because everybody's insecure, right? No, insecurity is just refusing to accept what God said you are. Insecurity is refusing to accept what God is making you into. A lack of thankfulness will cause you to look at yourself and say, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I think I should be. People don't think I am where I'm supposed to be. Just not thankful. Insecurity shows up in our fears. You don't want to accept what God's making you into, so you allow fear to rise up in you. You're afraid about what God might do tomorrow. You're afraid of what the future might require of you. It's just a refusal to accept what God's making you into, and it's unthankfulness. Fear also shows up in comparison. Instead of being thankful, you find affirmation in tearing others down. <laughs> Instead of being thankful for what you are, you find affirmation in propping people up to an unlivable standard so that you don't feel like you have to compare anymore. Look, ultimately, not being thankful is saying with your thoughts, emotions, and attitude, and actions that what God has done and who He is is not enough for you. Any area of a lack of thankfulness in your life, all you're doing is just showing, telling God that He's not enough. Thankfully, say thankfully. Thankfully. Being thankful is the key to fixing it. Amen. Thankfully, being thankful is the key to fixing it, man. When you start being thankful about, and I mean, when I say every, I mean every detail of your life. When you start being thankful for the people you live with, when you start being thankful for the people at your workplace, when you start being thankful for everything God has given you, it fixes this problem inside you. Amen. Ask me how I know. <laughs> I'm learning it right now. Amen. I've lived too long, too long thinking that there's a problem somewhere else and the problem is with me. The problem is my lack of thankfulness for where I'm at right now. And I'm learning that if you just drown, if you fill up that hole with thankfulness, there will no longer be a hole for you to trip in. You start being thankful for everything. Man, I'm thankful for the people I live with. Man, I'm thankful for the neighbor that at 3 o'clock at night, he revs up his car as loud as he can. I'm thankful because it's forming something inside of me. Being thankful is the key to fixing this problem. When you choose to be thankful for every detail and situation in your life, generosity flows naturally. Man, look at Elder Bosch. You can't see a more generous person and when you get around him, he is always telling you how thankful he is that you showed up at his house. One of the most thankful people I know, Elder Charlie, one of the most thankful people I know. And it always results in generous giving. And I don't mean money. 
I mean, giving of their time yeah, to you. True. Giving of their attention. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie to you. Sometimes it's hard for me to give my attention. <laughs> it's hard when some people are talking and, you know, just complaining and things like that to just, uh-huh, okay, yep. But I'll tell you what, the more I start being thankful for those people in my life, I realize it's forming something in me. And it actually frees me up to help them with what they're called to do. Man, tell me thankfulness won't fix it. Generosity flows naturally when you're thankful. And God loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? Look, thankfulness is a key in your life to actually unlocking the will of God for you. Some of us are kind of stuck in it. Sometimes some of us feel like our calling has square wheels. I promise you. Thankfulness is the grease to those wheels to get them moving. God's not going to give you more if you're not thankful for what he already gave you. Who's got Philippians 4, 12 to 13? I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, how many of you have heard this verse and... Repeated it to yourself several times. Oh, yeah. Look, it is a secret to joy. It's a secret to happiness. And it's a secret to generosity to be content with what you have. The secret to happiness is being content. The secret to joy is being content. Being content means that you are thankful for everything in your life, whether what you have is little or what you have is great. Paul had to learn this secret. You know what that means? It didn't come over time. It was something he had to learn along the way. He had to get stuck in the mud of complaining. He had to get stuck in the mud of going, Lord, why are you doing this? Why is it happening? And then he had to learn to be thankful to God and content with whatever he got. And you know what his conclusion was? That he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. He didn't learn it like Evander Holyfield learned it. He didn't learn it like John Jones Bones learned it and tattooed it on his whatever. (laughs) Paul learned this because he struggled. He learned this because he suffered. He learned this because he had setbacks. He learned this because he was surrounded all the time with trials. And yet his conclusion is I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not win a championship. I can do what God's telling me to do because I'm learning how to be happy. Man, I'm telling you, if some of us can just learn how to be happy with wherever we're at, man, you're going to see a whole new LCM rise up. Man, they're selling books everywhere. How to be happy. How to be happy at work. How to be happy at home. How to be happy in ministry. How to be happy wherever you go. Like a cat in the hat kind of book or something. (laughs) Telling you. We can all use a little bit more happiness in our lives. We can use a little bit of smiling from time to time. Some of the best advice I ever heard to a married couple is Elder Baj saying to a a newlywed couple, hey, laugh often. I'm telling you, it's good for you to be happy. And it's possible to be happy even in your deepest, darkest struggles. It's called contentment. Look, I want to, we got to start picking up on the time. I want to share with you a story, and uh, I'm going to try to not make this uh, too, I don't know. We're, we're just going to do it. I'm going to put a picture. 
Look at that beauty. That's a woman. I don't know who in the world gave her that haircut. But that's probably why she has that look on her face. <laughs> this is a woman named... Hey, stop that. I will spank you. You hear me? Stop. This is a woman named Narcissa wow. Whitman. Wow. I wonder what her problem was. <laughs> Maybe she was a little narcissistic. Narcissa Whitman was born March 14, 1808. She died November 29, 1847. She was impacted by the Lord during the Second Great Awakening and the preaching of Charles Finney. Since receiving the Lord, she dreamed of being a missionary to the Native Americans in the West. She grew up in New York. At the time, the West was like the big place of adventure in America. She wanted to go out West where there was danger and trouble. She eventually made the dangerous and daunting trip west and became the first American woman to cross the Rocky Mountains. After six months, she made it to Oregon country. Six months. Six months in a carriage. Any of you played Oregon Trail? Yeah, cholera, snakes, whatever. Indians. After six months, she made it to Oregon country and settled amongst the Cayuse Indians. When she arrived, she was shocked to realize the harshness of living in the West and was also horrified to witness the pagan practices of the Native Americans. She eventually grew bitter towards her circumstances of life. She lost a daughter at the age of two that drowned in the river that was next to their cabin. She also became resentful of the Indians and she even developed a hatred towards them. The Indians, in turn, developed a hatred toward her because she was mean and uninviting towards them. She just could not stand their pagan practices. She couldn't stand the way they dressed. She couldn't stand the way they talked, the way they looked, the way they smelled. Everything was wrong with them. And she became resentful of being there and the people she was surrounded by. And they, they developed a hatred towards her because she was mean. I mean, look at her. In the end, the Indians decided to surround her farm and kill her and the entire family, and they did. That's how she died. Because Narcissa Whitman never learned to be thankful for her opportunities. The very life she dreamed of killed her. Can you imagine what it would be like to dream of being a witness to the Native Americans who had never heard the gospel before? Can you imagine the opportunity of being able to do that and yet being crushed by that opportunity because when you got there you weren't thankful for how it looked? Wow. What she always was, bitter, ungrateful, and unthankful, followed her across the Rocky Mountains. This is why we must learn the lesson now, church. What you dream of getting turns into a curse if you can't learn how to be thankful now. Come on, that's a good word. What you dream of receiving from the Lord will turn into what kills you if you can't learn to be thankful for what you already have. Ever have someone who's praying about a job and then they get that job and they just can't seem to be thankful for it and it ends up killing them? 
Someone who is just, man, God spoke I'm going to be married. i got to be married. And then they get married. And that marriage kills them because they were not thankful before the marriage. <laughs> and then the circumstances of the marriage crushed them. Man, dreams of getting children. Dreams of leadership roles. Dreams of callings. Dreams of ministry partners. And then when you get all of those things, we all find time to complain about the circumstances of where we landed in those things. I want to tell you, it's God's gift to you, your job. It's God's gift to you, your marriage. It's God's gift to you, your children. It's God's gift to you, the leadership sphere of influence you have. It's God's gift to you, your calling. And it's God's gift to you, your ministry partners. Don't fall into the trap of being unthankful for them. Otherwise, you'll grow in resentment and your ministry will fail. Let's learn how to do it now, amen? amen. Hey, Colossians 4.2 is the answer to that. Get it, Hannah. Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to being thankful and obedient. Choose now to be devoted to this kind of prayer. It will result in more generous giving which will result in the unfolding of God's plan for your life. Amen. Now and here, let's devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful of all the enemy's attacks, and to being thankful. Let's devote ourselves to being thankful. Amen. Commit yourselves to being thankful in each situation, and you will actually enjoy the situations you're in. I'm going to say that again. Commit yourselves to being thankful in each situation, and you will actually enjoy the situations you're in. I'm tired of seeing people who do not. I'm tired of not enjoying the situations I'm in. I'm going to choose to be thankful, and then I'll enjoy it. You will find. Good news about being thankful is you'll find more and more things to be thankful for. It's a gift that keeps giving, man. You wake up saying, "I'm thankful for everything in my life," and you'll find more things that God's given you to be thankful for. Man, as soon as the word bursts forth. You might actually go to war if you have a thankful attitude. Amen? Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 6. We're going to go down to verse 8. The men of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God. And they piled them up in heaps. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. Wow. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord. And bless the people, bless his people Israel. Man, four months of joyful giving produced heaps. Man, I love that word. Yeah. Produced heaps of obedience and provision. Joyful giving resulted in praise from God. Man, praise God. Praise God. Come on, let's say praise God. Joyful giving resulted in praise from God. Want to hand out a few few scriptures on that? Uh, Glenn, you get 2 Corinthians 9, 10 through 11. Um, Assad, you get Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Uh, Leslie, you get Matthew 11, 25 through 26. And that's it. Second Corinthians 9, 10 through 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge. Man, say enlarge. Enlarge. <laughs> enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on 
every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Man, as you continue to sow generously, he will increase the seed you have to sow. As your seed enhances, your harvest will multiply. Yeah, I said it. Your harvest will grant you more opportunities to sow. And when you get this right, thanksgiving to God will multiply in you and others around you. You see, whenever you are thankful for the seed that you have to sow, whenever you are sowing generously to all those around you, God will give you more. Whenever you're sowing with what you have, God gives you more to sow. Whenever you're thankful for the harvest that is coming up, God will give you an even greater harvest because he's increasing your supply of seed. You've got Matthew 5, 14 through 16. See your what? Not your good doctrine? Not your ability to kung fu scripture convert somebody in an evangelistic meeting? No. That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Look, I want to tell you the problem with this world is that there is not enough praise to God. There's praise to men. There's praise to the superstar pastors on Highway 59. There's praise to idols like fishing boats and guns and sporting events. There's praise to fads. There's praise to trends, but not God. You were put on this earth to bring thanks and praise to God through your actions. This starts in you by you beginning to praise and thank God. And it works its way outward to other people seeing your deeds after you give generously and then it reaches the throne of the king. Who's got Matthew eleven twenty five through 26? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, but this is what you were pleased to do. Even King Jesus praises God for what you receive and do. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Even King Jesus is praising his Father for what you receive and what you do with it. I say tonight, let's lift our vision higher. I say tonight, let's aim our lives to the pursuit of making our king proud. He has contributed personally. He is such a good king. He has ordered everything in our lives. The least we can do is give him back what he's given us. The people were full of joy. They gave generously and this resulted with praise from Hezekiah. To God. Man, I say I want to I want to make my king proud. I want to do such a good job that even Jesus is looking and saying, man, praise, praise you, Father, for what Justin is receiving. Come on, don't you want that? Isn't it astonishing that you can make the king praise God, that you can make Jesus praise God? You have the ability to do that through your actions. Hey, let's pick up in verse nine and go to ten. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps. Yeah. And Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare, because the Lord has blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. Man, that's good news. 
It's miraculous at this point that the priests have enough to eat. They had been neglected. You remember in Ahaz's time, they were sent home. There was a new Samaritan priesthood. Man, these priests were starving, man. They hadn't had anything in a while. There were no sacrifices. The temple doors were closed. I want to submit to you, when the priests go without, it's a sign of judgment on the people. When the priests around you are going without provision, and Matt and Wade didn't tell me to say this, but when the priests are going without, it's a sign that the people are not doing what they're supposed to do. It's a sign that judgment is about to happen on the people. But thankfully, we're not a family that lets our priests go hungry, are we? No, we take care of our priests. Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 11 and go down to 15. Hezekiah gave orders to prepare storerooms in the temple of the Lord, and this was done. Then they, they faithfully brought in the contributions, tithes, and dedicated gifts. Conaniah, yeah. a Levite, was in charge of these things. Conan, the barbarian. And his brother Shimei was next in rank. Jehiel, Azaziah, Nahab, Asael, Jeremiah, Jezebel, Eliel, Ismachiah, Mahaz, and Benaiah were supervisors under Conaniah and Shimei, his brother, by appointment of King Hezekiah and Azariah the official in charge of the temple of God. Kor, son of Imna, the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was in charge of the free will offerings given to God, distributing the contributions made to the Lord and also the consecrated gifts. Eden, Minamin, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah mm. assisted him faithfully in the towns of the priests, distributing to their fellow priests according to, the, to their divisions Old and young alike. Now, I'll be honest with you. I was just figuring out what I would say here. (laughs) And uh, I realized that it's such a long group of passages that needed a break, and I had to say something, so I thought about what I would say. And I realized there's something incredible going on here. I thought maybe I could take their names and define them for you. I thought maybe I could take their names... And find out what else they did in the kingdom. And saw how powerful these men were. And why they were chosen. But instead, you know what spoke to me? What? The fact that these men were recorded. Amen. The fact that these men were recorded in the internal word of God for what they did. That's a good word. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? It is. I want to tell you, there is no task that is menial or insignificant for the Lord. The Lord records everything you do. And for some of us, that ought to be an encouraging thing. Amen. You know, I know you, you mothers, wives feel like nothing you ever do gets noticed. I promise you it does. Yeah. God sees your acts of service. Amen. He sees what you do when no one else sees it. And there is a reward for it. The word says it. There is no task that is menial or insignificant for the Lord. There's nothing that is too small, too rote for the Lord not to notice what you're doing. It doesn't, it doesn't escape his notice if it is done with thankfulness and generosity. When it's done with that kind of heart, no matter what, how small it is, no matter if it seems like it's the most glorious thing in the moment, or most of the time it doesn't, if it's done with the right heart, God sees it and records it. Look, let's hand out a few passages. Matthew six seventeen through 18 goes to Marlon. Matthew 10.42 goes to Cody. Acts 10, verse 2, goes to Jackie. 
And Jackie, when you get done with verse 2, you're going to slide down to verse 4. It's got Matthew 16, uh, sorry, 6, 17 through 18. But when you had the oil on your, on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who, who is from sin, and your father who sin what is done in secret will, will reward you. Man, do everything knowing that your father is watching and he's proud of you. Man, that'll change your need for affirmation, won't it? You do everything knowing and affirm that your father's watching and proud. Yeah, you won't have to post on Facebook or put on Twitter or whatever else that you tend to do. During your daily whatever, trying to get some kind of notice to see who's watching. When you do everything knowing that your father is watching and proud of you, man, that's the heart of a son. Look, don't lose the pride of a son in pleasing his father, or else you'll do everything for the affirmation of men. That is like a disease that once it gets a hold of you, man, it never lets go. When you are captivated with the affirmation of men, that is a disease that will drag you further and further away. To be honest with you, the sad part of that is, is God's not any less proud of you for what you're doing. It's just you can't feel that. You can't know it. And you're robbing yourself from that affirmation that you would get from the Father. Don't lose the pride of a son in pleasing his father. Who's got Matthew 10:42? And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Man, so you want to go and preach, huh? You want to go across the ocean and, and be in a, a, an amazing missionary. You want to do it because you think that is what's going to bring the most glory to God. I promise you what gives God the most glory is when you do the menial things with the right heart. When you do it knowing that nobody else is watching but you're making him proud, that gives more glory than crossing the sea and making a, disciples and having a newsletter. Look, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, he will certainly not lose his reward. If there's a reward in giving a cup of cold water, how much, how much of a reward is there for showing up to secret service? How much of a reward is there in cleaning the toilets and becoming like a servant? Man, there's much reward. If Jesus can can record even you giving a cup of cold water, you better believe that even the most menial task that you do is recorded by God. Man, that ought to be encouraging. That ought to put some pep in your step and say, I want to work for everything like I'm working for the Lord, like Paul wrote. Oftentimes these things bring the greatest reward from the Father because they don't get praise from man. Man, be careful in the praise you receive from man because that will dwindle the reward you get from God. God has a reward for you and you alone that you don't need to, nobody else needs to know about it. It's there for you. It's there to build you up. It's there for your affirmation. And when it happens over and over again in your life, you fall into the category where other men can see your progress and go, man, God's doing something in that brother's life. It's because you are building up that son-like attitude. Who's got Acts 10, verse 2? Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. A centurion who was, a, who was called the Italian cohort, 
A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many gifts to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Man, did y'all hear that? He gave many gifts to the Jewish people. That's incredible. Yeah. And fixing his gifts. No, he, Paul's right there. Look, it says he was devout, but how, did you, how do you know he's devout? By what he did. He gave generously and prayed to God regularly. His proof of being devout was his regular prayer and his regular generosity. I'm sure Cornelius at some time thought that he was neglected by the church in Jerusalem. Well, I'm not Jewish. I'm just a poor old Gentile. And yet something inside of him found to be devout and never stop doing what he knew was good to do. Man, it's almost like he was receiving the affirmation of God and not man. Yeah. Go down to verse 4. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and uh, alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Mm-hmm. Man, the things that he did were kept as a memorial. A memorial. Those things were remembered. Man, if that was done for Cornelius 2,000 years ago, how many, how many memorials do you think God has just from this church? Oh, how many memorials should, should there be for the Lord whenever we reach Him in His kingdom? Yeah. How many memorials should we see when we walk through into the kingdom? How many memorials should we see that were built according to our generosity and our daily regular prayer? Man, I say when LCM gets to those, when LCM gets to the New Jerusalem, man, we ought to see memorials everywhere to what we have done to the King of Kings. Don't let your pride and insecurity turn you into a memorial-stomping anarchist, though. Do those menial tasks. Do them with pride and joy, knowing that God sees them. Everything in your life that you're called to do is placed there for you to grow you, To develop that divine character that the pastors talked about yesterday. None of those things are options. None of those things are just things on a checklist that you must do to get your day over with. Wives, I am telling you, every detail, every detail that your husband lays out for you is divinely instructed by God to guide you to have a memorial in heaven. Look, in keeping this, there is great reward. In keeping this kind of attitude and doing everything... For the glory of God in secret. That's kind of hard to do. You know. Hey I got a praise report. I know I like to do it too. And there's a specialness. About doing what you're doing. There's a specialness in giving with your left hand. Even though your right hand doesn't even know about it. Because it shows that you're doing it for the glory of God. And I promise he'll reward you in secret. Hey let's pick up in verse 16. And we're going to keep going. Y'all getting something good? In addition. They distributed to the males three years, three years old or more, whose name was in the genealogical records, all who would enter the temple of the Lord to perform the daily duties of their various tasks according to their responsibilities and their divisions. They not only distributed to the priests, but they distributed to all the males three years old. Man, they not only assisted the priests, but they not only assisted the priests that were actually priests at that time. They assisted the priests that would be raised up. Man, they focused their attention on the generations. They focused on providing for the generations to come. Man, I say our focus needs to be on those who are coming after us, not just us. Man, I say that we need out of thankfulness... 
to give those supernatural offerings resulting from supernatural sacrifices, supernatural victories for the generations coming up. We shouldn't be treating... Now I am going to talk about money. We shouldn't be treating our finances as something God gave us to get what we want. We should be treating our finances as something God gave us to invest in our future. And I'm going to tell you, Boz used to always tell me, he's like, you know, the most important thing about Israel is going to be your sons. And it was hard for me to see that when Joshua was one year old, still in diapers, couldn't talk. But now that he's talking and got a Bible sitting in his lap, and that happens so quickly, feels like yesterday. Yeah, I want to get on board and start investing in him. Yeah. Now that I already see what he's becoming, it's, it's causing me to really press in and start thinking about my generations. Because if I don't, what will he become if I do not support him? Right. What will he become if I do not invest in that young man? Man, it will be a wasted opportunity. But that's not LCM, isn't it? No, no our kids are going to rise up better than we were, go further than we can go. They're going to take that spot on that map. Come on. Your sons and your daughters are going to do that. You know what I'm excited about? i got a little baby girl on the way. That means means somebody in this room I'm going to be related to in the future. And we're going to take that map together. Amen? All right, let's pick up in verse 17 and go to 18. And they distributed to the priests enrolled by their families in the genealogical records. And likewise to the Levites, 20 years old and more, according to their responsibilities and their divisions. They included all the little ones, the wives, and the sons and daughters of the whole community listed in these genealogical records. For they were faithful in consecrating themselves. Man, I like the fact that there were genealogical records. Man, I love that they recorded the genealogical records. Did you know you can go to Israel today? And you can see an exhibit of thousands of years of genealogical records, and it proves who the Jews are. You know, they all talk about skeptics, and they say you can't know who's a Jew. Not true. There are many voices claiming that it is impossible to know who God's people are. Not true. Science has proven it, although I'm not a scientist. I can read, so I know what the papers say. There are proof from geneticists that their DNA even have a genealogical record. That's interesting, isn't it? They took samples of Jewish families that had the last name Cohen, and they found out that their strands of DNA were all the same. Portions of their DNA were all the same going back to thousands of years. Man, it's incredible that God knows who his people is, isn't it? I want to tell you that just as there were records then, Just as there were genealogical records in the time of Ezra, there were the time of Hezekiah, there are records in heaven now. God knows who his people are. Otherwise, the entire Bible will never be fulfilled, obviously. How is God going to gather up all the exiles from the four winds if he doesn't know who they are? He knows. In the same way, if you are faithful in consecrating yourself as these priests were, then you are marked and set apart by God as his people. He will never leave you unprovided for because your name is written in heaven. You will never be at a disadvantage because he knows who his people is. Man, say, he knows who I am. He knows who I am. Man, if he is a good God who knows who his people are. Yeah. 
He knows every name that is in this church and not one is forgotten and unaccounted for. Don't ever fall into the devilish lie that God doesn't know who his people are. Not the Jewish people, not you, not anyone. Satan will get you to try to believe that God has forgotten about you, but it's not true. Just as the words of his people are engraved in the palms of his hands, I promise you your names are there as well. I promise you your God is for you. He's not against you. And these sufferings and trials that we go through are not God trying to get rid of us and him trying to root us out. They're there to refine us. He has your name written on his palms, and he knows who you are. That's good news, amen? Man, God has not forgotten. Say, God's not forgotten. God's not forgotten. He's not forgotten about you. He's not forgotten about the Jewish people either. Amen. Who's got verse 19 through 21? Oh, it's Lenten. Get it. As for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who lived on the farmlands around their towns, or in any other towns, men were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among them and to all who were recorded in the genealogies of the Levites. Mm. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. Woo! And so he prospered. Come on. Man, say do work. Do work. Brother Linton. <laughs> Look, we started tonight's teaching by asking a question. How did the greatest revival in Israel's history come from the darkest times in Israel's history? I believe the answer is in verse 21. Hezekiah was just one man. He didn't have quite what he wanted to start. He didn't have everything arranged whenever he came into the kingdom. He didn't have the stage set for him to the natural eyes, but God set the stage for him. Hezekiah was just one man. He didn't have a great team around him. He didn't have brothers and priests who were already right to assist him. He was just one man who sought God in everything that he did. He was just one man who sought to be obedient to the law in everything that he did. He was one man who worked wholeheartedly in everything that he did. He was one man that knew that he lacked nothing and yet wanted to give everything that he had. That kind of attitude produced a work ethic inside of this king. And what you're seeing is a result of one man's actions to get it all right. Man, what can one man do if he is not just focused on his own lack and instead focused on what the king is calling him to do? What can one man do if he just forgets about all of the voices of Satan trying to drown him in his own sorrows and puts his head down and goes to work? What can one man do if there weren't stumbling blocks wrapping around his feet and he just goes every day to work? He picks up his axe and he takes another chip out of that mountain. He picks up his axe and takes another chip the next day until he levels the mountain. What can one man do if he sets himself to work with all of his heart? I believe nothing is impossible for that kind of man. I'm going to hand out a few scriptures and we're going to get towards a closing. Paulie, fully. You get 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18. Nolan, 
You get Ephesians 1.3. Rob, you get 2 Peter 1.3. Gabe, Sonny, you get Proverbs 13.4. Asad, you get Proverbs 16.26. Adam, you're going to get John 5.16-17. And then you're going to slide on down to verse 19-20. through 20. JJ, you're going to get 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11, and then we're going to close. 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I get it. Paul went out and he made disciples everywhere he went. You know, and he was always just surrounded by good brothers and that's how Paul did what he did. Well, he definitely wasn't here. He says at his first defense, no one came to my support. He was left all alone. He was deserted. And yet he wasn't alone and deserted, was he? No, the Lord stood at his side and gave him strength. Man, he was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord rescued him from every evil attack. And he knew that the Lord would rescue him again. Just like Hezekiah, he stood alone. And Hezekiah is going to stand alone again when it comes to it. But Hezekiah was never at a disadvantage, was he? No. No, because he knew who was with him. He was never at a disadvantage. It was good to have people around Hezekiah. He, that's why he raised them up. But when they weren't there, he was never at a disadvantage because he had God on his side. Just like Paul, he was the majority in every situation. There was no perceived lack inside Hezekiah. Instead, he chose to go to work. Instead, he chose to make out of the situation what he wanted to see in the situation. Man, if you had that kind of attitude about your situations, I promise you, they will become what you want. If you look at the situation to see an opportunity to create something. Husbands, if you're looking at your wives and just seeing everything that's wrong and act like it'll never get fixed, it'll never get fixed. But you look at it as an opportunity to build what you want, it will get built. Like a brick house. Paul was never disadvantaged. He was the majority. Just like Paul, Hezekiah never complained. You never see him one time complaining, Why was I born into this situation? Why couldn't I have had a better daddy? Why couldn't I have been born to Jehoshaphat? Or someone else? He never complained about his daddy issues. He was thankful for the opportunity that he was born into and he went to work. Man, I promise you so many things would change of our lives if we just get to work. Let's go to Ephesians 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Hezekiah started with no one. He didn't start from ground zero. He started from negative 50. I mean, he had to tear down all kinds of stuff. There was Samaritan worship going on. There were lions eating. But he ended with a nation. 
that was joyful and victorious. One man who was thankful for the opportunity ended with a nation of people who were joyful and victorious. Instead of focusing on what was not there, he had eyes to see what he had in Christ. Man, Christ has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. You have every spiritual blessing available to you. But if you focus on what you think you don't have, you won't see what's available. Hezekiah chose to see what's available. He looked at the problem and he said, man, that's not a setback. That's an opportunity to build something glorious. He's got 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Man, he knew he had everything. And he knew he would be given everything as he goes to work. He didn't wait for it. Hezekiah didn't say, man, I'm just going to wait till a prophet is risen up who can help. Man, I'm just going to wait until Moses falls out of the sky and Elijah comes back. He already knew it was available to him. He already knew the divine power that was available to every man in Christ. And he went to work with it. You want to know what's true about this? If you set your hand to the plow, you know what you will find? A plow! If you set your hand to the plow, you will realize it's a tool to be used. If you set your hand to the work of God, you'll realize that the tools are abundant that He's given you. Even if you are suffering, even if you're sacrificing, you will start to realize that divine power that's available to every man in Christ. And I tell you, that's a tool to be used. The Holy Spirit is a tool to be used. Just get filled with the Holy Ghost and I promise you, you'll be able to go to work. won't have to set your alarm clock. You can just go to work. Get filled with the Holy Ghost. It's got Proverbs 13.4. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Hezekiah wasn't lazy in what he was doing. He wasn't lazy in knowing what he ought to do. He wasn't a sluggard who just sat there and craved and craved. Oh, how I wish things were different. Oh, how I wish that I had a different situation. Oh, how I wish that God would do something about this. No, he got what he wanted because he was diligent. He wasted no time in doing what was right. From the very first introduction to Hezekiah in chapter 29, he goes to work. In the first month, he opened the front door of the temple. He wasted no time. I promise you, don't, don't get in the habit of wasting time at all in your daily routine. If you start getting in the habit of wasting time, you're opening a door for the enemy to get a foothold. The more time you waste, the more time you waste. You can actually... The, If you do something, you get better at it the more you do it. Well, that applies to wasting time. If you get used to wasting time, you get better and better and better at wasting time. And you develop more excuses to waste time. And you justify yourself in wasting more time. Just stop doing it. He wasn't an armchair quarterback complaining about the circumstances around him. I've known too many of those. Sit back, not do anything. Have Have you ever been working on something? And there is somebody that has never done what you are working on and they're telling you how to do it? That wasn't Hezekiah. He didn't just sit back and 
let everybody else do the work. He did it himself. He had a thankfulness for the opportunity that he was born into, and he had a desire, a righteous desire to, to see God's kingdom flourish. And I believe, I mean, you can see it, that desire was fully satisfied, wasn't it? It's got Proverbs 16, 26. Oh, man, he had a hunger to do what God was calling him to do. His hunger for more of the divine power caused him to move. His hunger for more of the word, more of the spirit caused him to do what the spirit wanted him to do. Man, if you're not moving like you want to, you just got to get more hungry. You just got to cry out, say, I want more of it. You got to realize that the problem is not with your circumstances. It's with your hunger. You've got to realize and cry out, Lord, I want to want more of you. That's a right prayer to pray. If you find yourself not being hungry for the things of God, you, you cry out and say, Lord, make me hungry. His hunger caused him to make disciples all around him. It was the right hunger that God was building. Man, don't let any other hunger in your life drive and curtail the right hunger you're supposed to have. Don't have a hunger for idolatry. Don't have a hunger for any other distraction in your life. you got to get the right hunger in you and it will cause you to move. It's got John 5, 16 through, through 17. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Read verse 19 through 20. Jesus gave him this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. We'll back up for a second. John 1. John is proving that Jesus is the son of David. Our first introduction to Hezekiah is the statement that he is a son of David. In John 2, Jesus purifies the temple. Where does Hezekiah start? The temple. Taking all that menstrual filth out of there. In John 3, Jesus purifies the priesthood through Nicodemus. After Hezekiah purifies the temple, where does he go to? The priesthood. In John 4, Jesus is calling the lost to join him in what he's doing. We saw last week in 2 Chronicles 30 that Hezekiah is calling out to the lost. It was an invitation to discipleship. He was crying out. In John 5, you see Jesus working without ceasing. And in this chapter, you see Hezekiah working without ceasing. Man, there's so many parallels between Jesus and Hezekiah. I kind of think that's why Isaiah 7 was written saying, Unto us a son would be born, and that son was Hezekiah. Look, Jesus did not stop one day to meander in the moment of despair. He didn't do it. When that, I'm sure Jesus, like most of us, experienced the temptations that we experience every day. That despair comes in. You feel like your life's not going anywhere. You feel like your calling is, is being shattered because of the suffering you're going through. Don't stop one day to meander in that moment of despair. Get to work. Jesus did not think about thankless thoughts. He didn't have thoughts in His mind that were refusing to thank God for every situation. No, he turned them into opportunities. Jesus did not ponder problems concerning persecution. It wasn't even an issue for him. In fact, he wanted to go to the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
He didn't let persecution and suffering become a problem for him. And that is what the pastors have been preaching so well on in our church. He didn't let persecution be a setback. He let it become an opportunity for the divine to develop inside of him. Jesus instead worked wholeheartedly while suffering waylaying attempts from the enemy. Jesus suffered setbacks. And yet, every day he went to work. He said, I can do nothing by myself. Even today, my father is working and I am working now on the Sabbath. Jesus never stopped doing the will of God. And we shouldn't either. Every day should be an opportunity to wake up and say, what work needs to be done in the kingdom? What work needs to be done in my job site, in my home? Every day needs to be an opportunity for you to start praying. Look at your kids. Look at your wife. Look at your husband. Look at your job site. Look at your brothers. Look at your sister and say, what work needs to be done? Every day there is an area that we can advance the kingdom of God in our lives. There is no time to take a break. There is no time to say, I've done enough, and now I get to coast. I get to have the night off. I promise you, God grants special nights after you work for Him with whole hearts. God will grant you a time of rest, but you know what that time of rest is? It's also an opportunity to work. And man, I, I can tell you, those nights are amazing. In John 6... Jesus suffers setback. And next week, Hezekiah is going to suffer setbacks as well. Man, it's amazing to see how God has ordered these parallels with the King of Kings. Look, Jesus suffers setback. Hezekiah suffers setback. This is because the enemy takes notice to those who are like Ittai, thankful for every opportunity to give glory to the King. Man, that is what the devil is so afraid of. If you can... If you are just a Christian who is thankful for everything in your life and obedient to what he says, man, the devil puts out notice because you become dangerous to the enemy. Man, these are the two things as Christians we have got to master. Thankfulness for every area and obedience to everything he says. These are the, the two things we have to work on in our kids. Thankfulness from, thankfulness from them and obedience. These are the two things that we have to master as Christians. The devil takes notice to men like Ittai. He's worried about those who give their lives generously. He's not worried about those who are reluctant. He's not worried about those who are always so concerned about having to sacrifice. No, he's worried about those who give generously. He knows that those who work wholeheartedly will make disciples who do the same. You want to know how to make disciples? Begin to work wholeheartedly for God. And people will, see you, people will see you do it and they'll want to do it like you do it. I can't tell you the most infectious thing that I have seen these men do. When I came to LCM, I saw how they worked wholeheartedly for the king. And I wanted to pour out my life the same way. Amen. That is how disciples are built. You're not going to build disciples by getting all the Bible knowledge that you want, by learning all the eschatology you want, by being able to pray the best in the room, or be able to prophesy the deepest secrets of everybody that you know. You win disciples by having a strong work ethic in the kingdom. Amen. And people see that and say, man, I want, I want to be like that. Yeah. Man, I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to put my feet. I don't know where to put my hands. But he does, and I see him doing it every day wholeheartedly. I want that. Mm -hmm. The devil knows that those who live in constant joy 
will be a threat to the tithing traitors and salient slackers that he has lulled asleep. Man, the devil knows if you could just get lit with the flame of joy, it'll cause everyone else to rise up in it. The devil knows if you could just set yourself ablaze with the joy of God, it'll cause everybody else to go, hey, what's happened in him? Man, I, I t- I'm telling you something here. You can be in the kingdom for 10 years, and you can kind of feel like you've gotten somewhere in the kingdom, and then you see a new disciple who is full and brilliant of joy, and man, it kind of sets something ablaze in you. Man, joy is effective, uh, infectious like that. You get inflamed with the joy of God for every situation in your life, and it causes other people to want to rise up and do the same. LCM, this is how we win. When this grabs a hold of you, it will affect your household. Your family will start to notice. Your lost family will start to call you and say, what's gotten into you? When I was born again, the principal of the school came all the way from his office to me and asked, son, what has gotten into you? He saw the fruit of what God was doing in my life, how my character had changed, how I now had a smile on my face, and I was in love with something. And he asked, son, what has gotten into you? And I said, I've fallen in love with the king, and I am so happy that he has found me. Look, when this grabs a hold of you, it will affect your household. Your family will start to notice. This This joyful warfare will jump on them, and they will want to start fighting. They will want to start being a part. This joyful attitude of fighting and suffering, but being happy because you're suffering for the king, will be infectious. Your family will want it. You only need to read the Gospels and Acts to see how this affected the nation. Those 12 disciples couldn't have suffered any more than any human being ever did. And yet it lit the world on fire. Man, I say let us be an example for this generation. Let us get full ablaze with the joy and thankfulness of God and let them see us on fire. Amen. Who's got 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11? And this is 9 through, 9 through 10. And this is our last passage. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I love that Paul realizes that he didn't even deserve to be there. He did not deserve to be. I don't think Paul was just saying that to be humble. I don't think Paul was just kind of uttering those words. I think he meant it. I think there are some things recorded in the scriptures that he did, and a whole lot of things recorded that he did not, that, that he did as well. I think Paul knew deep down what was inside him, but you know what that did not do? It didn't cause him to shrink back one second. It caused him to go forward. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace of God are the circumstances in your life. Hear me. Let me see everybody's eyes. The grace of God in your life are the circumstances that he's placed around you. These are the things that God is using to make you what you are. That grace made Paul what he is. And he said that grace was not without effect. What did it do? It caused him to work harder than everyone else. Man, the grace of God are the circumstances in your life. The people of God that God has placed in your life 
is the grace of God in your life. The time you were born in is the grace of God in your life. The house you live in is the grace of God in your life. The job that God has given you is the grace of God in your life. Heck, your own faults are the grace of God in your life. That's true. Your own failures, your own setbacks, your own sinfulness can be the grace of God in your life if you will if you will allow it to cause you to work harder. If your failures become a lesson that causes you to grow and work harder, then it is the grace of God in your life. If those failures cause you to shrink back in fear and unthankfulness, then it becomes the damnation in your life. The grace of God in your life can be your own faults. And the grace of God can be your ability to say no from those faults. It teaches you a lesson. These are the things that propel you in the kingdom. Look, we love Hezekiah and Jesus because what they produced with what they were given. We love Hezekiah and Jesus because they started with nothing and yet they went to work. Man, I want to be a man like that, don't you? I want to be a man with no fuss, no qualms, no fights. No competition, no need to prove myself to anybody, no need for affirmation, unless it's godly affirmation, no need for anything to be noticed. I just want to go to work for God because I am so in love with my employer. Look, we want to close on thankfulness and what that produces inside of you. When you are thankful for every area that God has put in your life, it, remo- it removes the victim mentality out of you and it makes you victors. When you are thankful for the trials, I'm literally saying when you look at every situation and wake up in the morning, thank God for the house I was born into. Man, thank God for the church I'm in. Thank God for the pastors. Thank God for the correction that they gave me. Thank God for every detail. Thank God for the car I drive, even though it might not work. Thank God for it. Man, thank God for anything and everything. When you do that, it removes the victim out of you and makes you a victor. It allows you to gain the insight into what you need to get right. When you're so focused on complaining about everything else inside of you, you can't really see what you have to get right and what you need to learn because you're so focused on what you think is wrong. Being thankful gains insight And you now see rightly when you get that. Man, being thankful will destroy the depression inside of you. It'll destroy the despair. It'll destroy the discrepancies that you feel inside you right now. And it will fill you with a true joy. Man, being thankful will cause you to... Man, I'm so happy about everything. When we do that rightly, it'll cause us to want to destroy idols everywhere we find them. When you're so full of joy, when you're so thankful and and you're gaining insight and you're seeing all the areas you've got to destroy, man, you want to do that for everybody around you. See, this this is how you become a good priest of your home is you destroy those things inside your heart and it allows you to destroy the things inside your home. It'll cause you to want to spread that joy to everyone. It'll cause you to want to look at someone else and say, hey, bro, like Buddy Brass says, hey, bro. I see you're struggling with this, man. Let me help you. I know how you can get some joy in this area. That's what it'll cause you to do. Not not look to beat down on someone because they're failing. We want to stand up at this moment and we want to pray together. Amen.
I know that I know that many of you right now, God is dealing with areas in your hearts where you've been unthankful. I know that. God's dealing with areas in my heart that has been unthankful. God's dealing with areas in my life that I have not been generous in giving my time to my family. God's dealing with areas that I have not been giving generously to my pastors and to this body. I know that the Lord's speaking those things to you. And what I want to invite you to is not a somber repentance. Not a pitiful crying at the altar because honestly that's not going to fix anything. This prayer that we pray is not going to fix it. The practice that you get walking out of these doors will fix it. Making a commitment to the powerful, freeing, victorious attitude of thankfulness. Making a commitment to practice joy outside these walls will cause you to stand up and shine like stars in the darkness. Man, it will cause you to be like that one life that infects one family with joy. That infects one nation with joy. Right now we want to cry out with joy. We want to pray with a rising voice like David said. Lord, restore us to the joy of our salvation. Mighty God, we thank you for what you're doing inside of us. Lord, every detail of our lives is instructed and ordered by you. Lord, we thank you for all of the painful trials and all of the suffering that you're putting inside of us. Lord, we thank you for all of the things that cause us to cry out to you. Lord, right now we put down fearful attitudes. Right now we put down unthankfulness. Lord, we lay it on your altar and we crucify it in the name of Jesus. Lord, right now we lift up a shout to heaven. Lord, right now, Lord, we respond in the joy that you had before the cross. Lord, right now, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you have demonstrated before us. We thank you that you are a king who has provided so much for us. And Lord, we say we want to give it all for you. Lord, we want to give it all for you, Jesus. Lord, we want to give it all for our brothers. We want to give it all for our children and for our wives. Lord, we want to give it all for our husbands. Lord, we say crucify the lazy attitude inside of us. Lord, we want to love you more. Lord, we want to want you more. I pray right now that you cause our hunger to rise. And then when we go out these doors, that we tear down idols everywhere we go. Lord, in Jerusalem, Judea, and all the areas of Samaria and to the ends of this earth. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our body. We thank you for our pastors and elders. We thank you for the words that we've been getting lately. Because you're building something beautiful inside of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.